Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I'm dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, It ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, that's a staggered disclosure. That's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period, making you feel insecure, unsure, and unsafe. So what we got to do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment. You know, when you have experienced the worst thing in your life, we want you to feel as safe as possible. We call it feeling safe in an unsafe situation. And so that means you've got to work with specialists that know, A, how to keep you safe, how to develop boundaries, and how to, you know, how to make things happen in a really safe way. Now, AppSats believes that the first phase of your journey is becoming as safe as possible. Because let's, let's examine this for a second. You just found out something dramatic. You can't believe that it's happening to you. You don't know who the heck you've been living with. And you wonder where your future lies. So the good news is it can get better. We can help things for you. We can, we can advise you um, about your choices and about your life because we have studied this. This is our specialty. So that's what AppSats is all about. Now, let's face it. I just did a, um, oh, the Brave, Braveheart Summit interview. And I was saying that, you know, if you decide to stay, good for you. If you decide you don't want to stay, good for you. It's important for you to start making decisions that really are in your best interest. Can you imagine that? In your best interest? So, okay. I'm curious as to 
what are some of the questions that you have that have to do with what's in my best interest? I mean, one of the things I say about partners is that more of them are, aren't women than men, and women tend to take care of everybody's needs before their own. So when I talk to women about what they need, what's in their best interest, they don't know. They don't know at all. And so really, one of, the, one of the things I want you to think about is what do you need? What is in your best interest? When you think about your relationship, what, if I were to say rate your needs, you know, rate your trust, one to ten, how much do you trust him today? Now, you may be in discovery stage. You may be in grief. You may be in post-traumatic growth, restoration. Um, but what do you need, you know, to develop more trust? So when I ask people to rate their level of trust in their relationship, they may say, well, it's a three. Okay, it's a three. What would it take to make it a four? You get the gist. You have to think about one small thing that you need to build more trust. And boy, trust is the big one, isn't it? It's hard to develop more trust. Yeah. So, what would make for more trust in your relationship? Is it something from him? Could he do something? Better check-ins? Come home earlier from work? Go to more meetings? Or is it something about you? Um, Let your guard down? Have more faith in your higher power? Read less recovery materials because it keeps you activated? I don't know. Could be anything. So, if you will, get out a piece of paper and a pen or get out your notepad right there on your phone and write down, what do I need to have more trust in my relationship? And just brainstorm for a minute. What would that look like? You know? And I may give you ideas. I know it's a hard assignment. Partners don't necessarily know what they need. And that makes it really tough. Yeah, definitely definitely makes it very tough. And so maybe that's something you can talk about during the group, you know? When you are in a group, you can brainstorm ideas and, this is really cool, help each other out. Hearing what somebody else needs may be, oh, yeah, that would help me to develop more trust. 
And really, isn't it trust that you need more than anything right now? I know that for me, when I work with partners, they need to feel safe and they need to develop trust. And they have to have that safety first, but then as their husbands are in better recovery, then they have to decide, how am I going to trust them? When am I going to trust them? And what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, gosh. The worst thing that could happen is that he's untrustworthy and you don't figure it out for a while. That would be very tough. So, I'm just curious. What number would you give your relationship? One is I don't trust him at all, or I don't trust at all. And 10 is I trust him implicitly. That's the big question. Okay. So I I was talking with uh, another couple today, and um, she feels like her husband is very critical of her. And she says, you know, and she said this in front of him, she said, he gets mad and he holds things in and he walks away and he leaves me just really feeling bad about myself. And I think if any of us put ourselves in her situation, we would understand how that would initially make you feel bad about yourself. But that's where, as women, we have to make the choice. In other words, we have to choose to not feel bad about oneself. You know, if if for whatever reason his walking away stirs up inside of you perhaps a fear of attachment. You know, I mean, or I really should say a fear of abandonment because we all know that partner betrayal really affects your level of attachment. You may have had a good attachment prior to, and then all of a sudden it was fractured. So really, when your partner is critical, looks annoyed, is irritated, and won't talk about it, the ideal partnership is that you two talk about it, work it out, and then conflicts brings you closer. But if he's not in that place, let's say he's not emotionally mature enough to do that, you can't go down with that sinking ship. You've got to stay strong, and you've got to say, that's a Carol the Coachism. You've got to be able to say, I won't give Mark the power to make me feel inadequate. Or I won't give the power to make me feel angry. And that Carol the Coachism comes directly from Eleanor Roosevelt, who said it way better than I said it. Her quote was, no one can make you feel inferior 
without your consent, which really means you have to agree with the person that's making you feel bad to feel bad. So I was sharing with her. I said, you know what? I say at least 10 times a week. I'm not going to let that person make me feel anxious. Or I'm not going to let that situation make me feel insecure. Because that doesn't help the process, right? It just doesn't help. And what I know to be true is that very clearly, when we own our confidence, with clarity, we have more conviction. And when we have more conviction, we feel stronger. And when we feel stronger, we feel more resilient. So, I mean, I'm a proponent of taking a look at my actions and my, my behaviors and owning what there is to own. But I am not going to walk around feeling bad because I'm not going to walk around feeling bad because somebody else is mad at me. That makes no sense. You got it, right? It's making sense to you. So think about that and say to yourself, I won't give him the power to make me feel blank. Just don't do it. Now today... I've got a caller. She's my guest, and she has an incredible story. She was married for 36 years to a sex addict. I'm afraid she's trying to get on the phone. I see a, I see a number that keeps popping up on the screen, and I have been letting it just sit there <laughs> until it's time for her to come on, but then she disappears, so I'm hoping she's not having connection problems. It's Beth Dennison, and... and she, was, she is married to a pastor, and together they have dealt with this um, horrible sexual addiction, and they've grown stronger from it, and now they have a ministry. And she's going to talk about the recovery ministry, ministry they both started and how she's helping people to heal and how they both are and what they're doing. Beth's a certified life coach. She's written... Lots of different things for Covenant Eyes, my favorite filter system. Uh, I don't know if you get that newsletter, but it's amazing. It has a lot of helpful tips. And she is working on a recovery workbook and hopes to have it published in 2020. And she wants to use it with her, her folks, so I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to check and see, is this Beth on the line? Yes, it is. How are you, Carol? I am well. I was just telling my listeners, I thought I saw you come on and off and on and off, and I was like, oh, I hope we're not having connection problems, so no, I'm so I, glad you no, were able. Yeah, got in the first try, actually. So. Oh, excellent. Well, let me tell you a little bit um, about this show, because obviously we wanted to hear about your journey. We love to hear about a partner's journey. And 
you know, it seems like you're right in post-traumatic growth. You're in that restoration phase of your relationship because you are doing incredible things in the world. So let me just ask you something. Um, sure. Would you, would you give our listening audience just a taste of your relationship, your struggle, uh, and what it was like to be married to a sex addict? And now what's it like to be working together in recovery ministry? Well, that's a great question. Um, I tell you, it, it's been quite a journey. Uh, my husband was a senior pastor for over 30 years. And so when I met and we married, he was already in ministry. And so I just jumped on, you know, that same teamwork and we worked together in ministry um, and but the whole time for the first 30 years um, he was living this secret life that I did not know about now there were a couple of incidents in our marriage that would come up that I would say okay that's not right that's off we went to counseling a, a couple of times but um you know, then things would be back okay again, and then maybe a couple of years later, there might be something else that would kind of come up. But, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's uh, living a secret life, when you do confront them on something that you find, uh, they typically will minimize it, or they will just flat out lie, or they will turn it in some way to make you think that the issue is yours or it's not as big a deal as you're making it out to be. And so anytime I found any kind of thing that I felt was incriminating, um, it was, it was minimized and um, I got very little of the truth. I would get maybe the tip of the iceberg, which at the time seemed like I think we would call them the little teas, little traumatic experiences um, and we might go see a counselor for a while. And then back to, you know, routine. Life in the ministry is always busy. You're always going. Um, and it may be a few years down the road and something else happens. So I never knew that these incidents were in any way connected. They weren't always the same. Um, and so I did not see a thread that ran through it. I just thought these were isolated incidents. And it wasn't until we had been married for 30 years that I discovered something and I confronted him. And I don't know what it was about this particular time, just a special um, grace and discernment that God gave me at that particular time to keep pressing, but I managed to stay very calm and presented him with the information. And he did what he had always done, which was to make up a story. But in my spirit, I, I knew that that was incorrect. And I had actually done um, a little bit of digging, which I'm sure there are many um, partners out there who can relate to that crazy roller coaster of looking for um, what I would call the smoking gun, looking for evidence. And just, I, I, you know, I joke that I could become a full-time detective <laughs> you know, because I was always looking for something. But at that particular time, I presented something, and as usual, he um, dismissed it, said it was it was nothing, that you know, made up a story. But I was able to stay calm and just say, you know what, I'm going to ask you that again, and I would like for you to tell me the truth this time. 
I don't know what it was about that particular time, but that began the unfolding of him disclosing what had been a 30-year sexual addiction. And, um, of course, it was, it was devastating, but at the same time, there was something very relieving to me to know that I had not been just imagining this all these years, that there was really um, an explanation for this. And so uh, we both got into counseling, and um, at that point, he went all in, and I was very thankful for that. But since that time in 2013, we have been on this journey of recovery and healing and restoration. So um, it, you know, it, it's great to be on this side of it and to be living um, in freedom and in authenticity in our relationship. About a year after we've gotten into recovery, when I found out about all this, I was just trying to keep my head above water. I was just trying to survive. I wasn't thinking about ministry. Should we be in ministry, not be in ministry? I'm just thinking about how do I get out of bed the next day? You know, how do I go through the motions? And um, so we got into counseling and we were doing good and had gone through a therapeutic disclosure, a three-day intensive with a polygraph. And um, and so I knew that we were finally on the same page. We're finally in recovery. About a, a year after that, we're still in ministry. My husband's still pastoring a very large church. Um, but at that time, about a year later, someone got on his computer and they discovered his disclosure document, which was, um, for me and for the therapist in our intensives. And they read that and they took it to leaders in our church. And so at that point, um, he was called in. There were six men there who presented that to him. And suddenly life as we knew it was over. And so it was another traumatic thing, but it was actually for me, a sense of relief because since we had gotten into recovery and I knew now what those secrets were, I no longer wanted to live a life of secrets. I didn't like that feeling, even though I didn't know what those secrets were to much extent. Now that I was in a healthy place, I did not like the idea of living in secrecy and not being able to be authentic with other people and share where we were at. And so when he lost his job, though life as we knew it was over and we had no idea what we were going to do for income and uh, you know, what our future would look like, I had an overwhelming peace that God was going to sustain us and that we were on the right path. And the thing I told him then, of course, he was devastated when he thought, you know, as he had cost us everything. But I, I made it very clear to him that I would not trade it for anything. I would much rather lose everything and be walking in healing in our marriage and with him personally walking in freedom than to still have it all and to be walking in bondage and darkness and secrecy. So oh, they're just absolutely. And you know, one of so, the things yeah. that I know is that that bondage and secrecy would have caught up with his recovery and it would have interfered absolutely. with that, let alone the fact that you two want to start a new life 
And that has to be done with honesty and transparency, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't do it apart from that. So, so yeah, that, that, was, that was kind of a journey. Yeah. Let's, I'm just curious. I know it's really not important, but are you saying that somebody got into his computer and was snooping? Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. But, you um, know, it, it was whatever the reason was, I look at mm-hmm. it as God had it all orchestrated, and it was actually for our good. Um, you know, it didn't feel good at the time, but I know right. that it was a part of his plan that he has been using this whole time. Um, so I'm, I'm actually, I don't know why this person did or what their motive was, but it turned out to be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And that's a great attitude to have. And that's how you're supposed to handle life anyway, but that was true to form for you. It really kept you in integrity to be able to be honest about what you were choosing to project to the world. I love that, Beth. Yes. So then what yeah. did the two of you do next? Well, at that particular time, we didn't exactly know what we were going to do. Um, our son, our only child, um, was living in Florida. We were living in Texas at the time, and he had gotten married mm-hmm. and was living in Florida. And so we just kind of had a chance for a fresh start. Didn't know what we were going to do, but we decided we would pack up and move from Texas to Florida to be near our son and just to start over and see what God had next for us. And so for the next few years, we kind of did odds and ends as we just looked for what was next in this big plan. Um, And we just sought God's direction, and it wasn't for a couple of years, but you know, after that, we felt like God was leading us to um, start a ministry after we had been in recovery for a couple of years and things were going well and we were just kind of making ends meet other ways. Um, and actually, we weren't in ministry. We had moved to Florida and joined a church and uh, just became one of the other congregants. And it was kind of a, a nice time for us to continue our healing. Um, you know, I say that... Uh, God brought us to Florida. To we are we're about uh, five miles from the beach, to some of the most beautiful beaches in the United States. And I said, I feel like God just picked us up and put us here in paradise to heal. So um, we we came here to um, to heal and to grow and see what was next. Um, and then felt God leading us to start a, a recovery ministry to help others who have were going through what we had gone through. Well, you know, I definitely admire the fact that you took the bull by the horns and you said, okay, we are going to put together this recovery ministry. So what did you decide next to do? I mean, what do you mean when you say we put together this recovery ministry? What does that entail? Well, actually, we took several years of planning and preparation before we actually launched it. We felt like... um, you know, that call was also a call to prepare. We wanted more recovery under our belt, and we wanted to um, get some education and um, just kind of figure out 
what this was going to look like, kind of lay the foundation. We wanted it to be a strong foundation. And so my husband, who already had a, um, a master's and a doctorate, uh, felt like to go back to school. And he got a, a master's in addiction recovery ministry. And um, he's since gone on and became uh, a certified PSAP a pastoral sex addiction professional. Um, and I went, got some training as a life coach. And then I uh, went uh, and worked under Deb Weiss and got um, partner recovery coaching training to work specifically with partners um, of sex addicts. And then I've just most recently done the absence training, but, but we felt like we wanted to be as prepared as we could be. There are a lot of um, ministries who they are helping others based on their own recovery and their own story, but we just felt God was leading us to go a step further to have some training and education to go along with that so we would have an extra component there uh, that we could bring some real recovery tools into the mix to help people. And then we spent um, another year, when you are setting up a ministry in the 501c3, it's, it's a lot of work. There are a lot of um, things to get in place before you can even launch that. And we just wanted to make sure that we had a lot of the groundwork just in a solid way before we launched this ministry. So we spent several years preparing, but we really felt like you know, in, in that time when we were deciding what to do, and um, we recognized that to do so, to, to launch a ministry like that, would make our story very public. And part of this preparation was just being prepared for that story being out there. You know, there are a lot of people, we hear it unfortunately a lot in the news today of of people in ministry who have some kind of moral failing. Um, but for those who it doesn't make it on the, on the front page, they have the decision, okay, what am I going to do now that I have lost this position because of a moral failing? Well, historically, they, you know, move to another state um, and hopefully start over in another ministry and pray that it never becomes public there or they leave ministry and they, um, you know, they go sell insurance or go sell cars or, or, or do some other kind of secular work. And certainly we have those options, but we just felt like um, God wanted us to take what had been a problem to become a platform to help others. And so we laid that groundwork before we ever launched the ministry. And, you know, I look, I look back and I think about, um, in the church, how this is still such a very taboo subject. And, but at one time, alcohol abuse, you know, alcoholics were very shunned in the church. That was, that was a big issue then. But there were brave people that somewhere along the way stood up and told their story. And now it's nothing in most churches. They have AA meetings and they talk about it openly. But this issue is still very much under wraps and still very much taboo. But there has to be some brave people that step forward and are willing to tell their story to help tear those walls down so it gets a, a hearing so people can um, learn about the depths of this problem and it can come out of the darkness and into the light where people can get help. 
Well, and that is clearly where you had your faith, faith that if you did make it public and you you may created a platform to help other people, that God would have your back and that even if there was some division or some aversion, that ultimately you would be blessed in so many ways. Yes. And you have been blessed, Absolutely. have you not? Oh, oh, and in more ways, I, you know, if you have several hours, I could tell you so many stories of how God has just continued to um, encourage us and assure us along the way that this is the path we're supposed to be taking. You know, I, I feel like this is God redeeming what the enemy meant for our destruction. He's redeemed it and turned it for something that's bringing him glory and it's helping other people. Uh, and we're just thrilled to be able to be a part of that. Well, I get that. So now I'm wondering, what would you say are some key components to your ministry? Like, share that with us. Okay. Well, um, you know, we we both work individually with um, addicts and, and their spouses. We do one-on-one work. We, we work with groups. I, I lead groups um, through recovery materials. My husband has written a 90-day recovery plan for those struggling with sexual compulsive behaviors and addiction and pornography, and he, he takes them through that, and he's written a, a one-year maintenance plan after that just to keep them on track. So, so we work individually, but we also work with couples. We do some couples work. Um, we've written articles and blogs, and, and we do a lot of writing just to help educate people on, on this issue because there's, it's still an um, evolving group, you know, a subject. But we also speak at, at churches with church groups, men's groups, women's groups, um, trying to open that door in churches to educate them. We work with pastors and church leaders, helping to educate them and equip them to just the depth of the problem, the scope of the problem that is in their own churches, in their own pews every Sunday. Um, and most of them are just not equipped. Uh, we read a study that said only 7% of churches have anything in their church to deal with this kind of an issue. And yet we know it is such an overwhelming and growing problem that that is just not going to cut it. And so we want to be a part of helping the church to be equipped. So we, we work kind of a twofold thing. We work with individuals, but we also work with pastors and churches and ministries to, um, to help provide them education and information and resources as they deal with it in their own congregation. Also, because we were in ministry, we know that for others in ministry who may be having some of these same struggles, it is very difficult um, to feel like you can reach out for help and it be safe. You know, if you're a, an architect or a plumber or whatever, and you're struggling with sexually compulsive behaviors, and they find out about it at your work, you're not likely going to lose your job. But if you're in ministry and you're struggling in this area um, and it becomes public, your ministry is typically over. It is very um, seldom that that is not the way that picture ends, unfortunately. And so we want to be a safe place for those who are in ministry that need help can reach out. And so we actually work with a lot of 
pastors, ministers, and their wives as they walk through this to be that safe place where they can get some information, get some help, and get on a path to healing that hopefully can turn that ship around before it, you know, crashes and takes down a lot of innocent people as well. So that's, that's a big burden for us as well. Well, you know, I say that we're all pioneers in this field because even though sexual addiction has been around for so long, it wasn't until the late 90s when the Internet became popular that it made it so much more affordable, anonymous, and accessible. And so here yes. you guys are really working at a grassroots level to um, provide the churches and people in general an opportunity for support, education, and healing. So now tell me what makes your approach so unique. Well, I think there are a couple of things. I think one, the fact that we're both in it together um, makes us a a little unique. Um, We know a lot of people where, you know, the, the addict has gotten in recovery and he has started a ministry or spouses have been on a healing journey and now they help others. But there's not very many out there where it's the husband and wife together who have walked through that, who are in a healthy place and are working together uh, to walk people through this. So we bring the perspective of the addict and the wounded spouse uh, to the table. And I think that that's a big benefit there. But, um, you know, and, and working with, with people in ministry is, is unique, that we have that as a big focus. I would say probably 40 to 50% of the people that we work with are people that are in ministry of some sort. And so that seems to, I think they maybe feel a little safer with us because we have that experience. We've been there. Um, and and we're on a healthy road now, which um, it's, you don't see that enough, unfortunately. And so to be able to see that, I think, provides them with some encouragement as well and some hope. And that's hence our name, There's Still Hope, because we want um, individuals, couples, churches to know that regardless of how overwhelming this problem is, that God's a whole lot bigger and that there is hope for healing and restoration. And so we, we bring um, the coupleship to the table, but we also, I think, bring a balance of the educational perspective along with some really practical tools uh, to help people in this journey, and we provide um, the spiritual component, um, the biblical foundation um, and inspiration that is really, we believe, the power behind the healing and ability that you need to make it through this journey. Okay, so somebody who is agnostic or atheist might not be able to relate because you really have that strong relational spiritual component. You know, we have have worked with um, a few people who would say up front, I don't consider myself spiritual. We're very upfront about this is the approach we're going to take, but it's very balanced in the sense that um, for some who approach this subject from a biblical um, Christian perspective, 
look at it almost exclusively from that. And there's a lot of emphasis on deepening your walk with the Lord and more prayer and more of the disciplines of the faith. And while all of those are very important, those alone will not bring recovery. You know, my husband will be the first to say, you know, I was a pastor. I was in the word every day. I was preaching. I was doing all of these things. And yet, you know, I just thought, okay, I need to pray more. Those things alone will not bring um, healing from addiction. And so we recognize that it takes the, um, the neuroscience information, the education, and practical tools combined with the other to be able to walk it out. And so we, we do work with others who um, are maybe not um, in that same place. And I think that they have found um, that we bring so many, I would say, practical tools to the table and, and educational information that it's beneficial in and, of it, in and of itself. And so can you share just one of those tools, one of the exercises or one of the formulas that you may give either the addict or the partner? Sure. I'd be happy to do that. Um, you know, I'm going to give you one that um, I think is, it's, I love it because it's biblical and practical. And that's when, um, for the wounded spouse, when she comes in crisis, her world has been turned upside down. And, you know, they will say, I'm, I'm struggling just to get out of bed. I'm struggling to get my kids' bed and off to school. I, what do I do? Where do I start? Well, they're in crisis, and we start with the basics. With, with someone like that, I'm going to start with the very basics. You've got to take care of yourself. You have got to eat when you don't feel like it. You've got to get rest. You, you know, you've got to make sure that you, if you, there's any way that someone else can help with the kids, help with other things, without having to disclose necessarily what you're going through, but, but just basic self-care. And I, I, I love it because, one, it's, it's very practical. I give them some steps, okay? What's one thing that you can do tomorrow that's for you. You know, a practical thing. I work with them to come up with just one or two things that are very basic to keep them on track with that. And there, there's a story in the Old Testament when the prophet Elijah is running for his life. Um, um, Jezebel has said she wants to kill him. And this has been a great man of God who's uh, just stood down the prophets of Baal and seen God do incredible things, but now this woman is out to get him, and he is running for his life. And the Bible tells the story of how he fled from everybody. He went into the desert. He left those that were with him. He left them to the side, and he goes off into the desert by himself, and he prays to God to die. And he says, I just can't do this anymore. And he lays down, and he goes to sleep. And when I read that story, I see so many characteristics of a person in trauma that relates to women who find out that they're married to someone who's in addiction. And what's very practical in this story is while Elijah is laying down asleep, an angel comes and wakes him up and says, 
you need to get up and eat. And he provides him food, and Elijah eats, and he lays back down and goes to sleep. And the angel comes back later and wakes him up and says, you need to get up and eat some more. And he says this, he says, because the journey ahead of you will be too much for you if you've not taken care of yourself. And I think, how wonderful that God gives us such practical examples because I work with so many women who have to be reminded to eat and reminded that, you know what, you need the strength. This is too overwhelming. You will not make it through. It's tough enough, but if you do not have basic self-care, you are not going to make it through this journey. You will flame out because it's too overwhelming. The body just shuts down. But you have to be reminded to eat. You have to be reminded to sleep and, and just basic things like that. So very practical, and I love it because in this particular instance, you see a story in the Bible that correlates to it perfectly, gives us basic principles, but is also very practical, and we can use it in working with women in crisis who are dealing with this trauma. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, you know, I know that you know that when a partner has discovered and is going through that crisis, their parasympathetic system is affected. And believe it or not, the digestive tract slows way, way down. And so Mm -hmm. oftentimes what ends up happening is that because it shuts down, there is no desire to eat. There is not one bit of desire to eat. And you may think it's psychological because you're so stressed out. And it's true, but it's also physiological because that parasympathetic system has shut down the digestive system. Yeah. And, and I also will encourage uh, women I work with, go see your, go see your primary care person. Um, be checked out because they can have issues develop with, with digestion, um, with not being able to sleep. And they need those things more than ever right now in this crisis time. So these are just some practical tools that um, I suggest and help them to come up with a plan uh, so they can, can move forward in a very basic way initially. And then we move on from there once they've kind of gotten that piece um, in place. Um, and then we move on from there, learning how to – develop a safety plan. Their world has been turned upside down and nothing feels safe anymore. Um, You know, our home should be our safest place on earth with the people that we love and feel safe with. But when you discover that your spouse has had a secret life, suddenly the person that you have trusted more than anybody you learned has betrayed you, has lied to you repeatedly, and it's not just the actions themselves. It is the life of duplicity that they've been living um, so that they can carry on these things. And so nothing feels true or safe. And, And to help someone who is in this place to determine what do I need to feel safe? What, what components do I need in my life? And, and how can I, how can I ask for that? How can I use my voice and speak up for what I need in this unsafe time? So, so working with them to just develop some practical tools 
what do you need right now, um, and how to ask for that. Uh, it's just very practical. Yeah. Let me remind everybody that I am talking to Beth Dennison, and she and her husband, well, she is a certified life coach, and she's an a- APSAT certified partner recovery coach. Oh, no, I see. You're an AASAT certified partner recovery mm-hmm. coach. That's Doug Weiss's, right? Yes. Yes. And you're an APSAT trained um, coach who is going to get your certification, right? Yes, I am. Very excited about that. And I am too. And you have done so much in such um, a short amount of time. I know that. You're a regular writer for my favorite filtering system, Covenant Eyes, and yes, you great. have this. Yeah, you have this organization. There's stillhope.org. So if anybody wants to check out their website, it's under there'stillhope.org. And you actually run groups, and you're going to be publishing a 12-week partner recovery workbook. Correct. Yes, I have it written. I'm, I'm finishing some editing in it, and then we'll send it to the proofer. And hopefully it will be published the first part of 2020. So, And I've already, well, you have let, no. already used the material. And I already used the material with the groups, but I'm going to have it in a book form so others can get it and use it as well. Absolutely. And I do want to know when you do that. It's interesting because uh, two other um, AppSats coaches and myself are also – putting together a recovery workbook. Now, yours will have a spiritual component to it, correct? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. That is wonderful. Okay, so now you've kind of described what people can expect if they work with you. Um, You would like them to either get a hold of you through theirstillhope.org or they can email you at Beth at theirstillhope.org. And Absolutely. So I, want to, I want to ask you, um, as we wrap up for today, what would you tell addicts, couples, and partners to give them some strength, hope, and recovery? You know what I would tell them, and of course this comes from my faith as well, but with God, all things are possible. And there is no situation that is too great, that's too far gone, that God isn't greater still. There is hope there. Um, will it require a lot of work? We, I would love it if God would just come and zap people and, and, and bring that healing um, instantaneously. But we know that it takes um, a lot of work and a lot of time. But if we're willing to put in the time and the hard work and allow God's spirit to give us the power that we need to keep persevering, um, there will be victory on the other side if you just keep at it and you don't quit. Well, those are very encouraging words, and I know that a lot of people need to hear them. It's like they believe it, but they don't live it. Because deep down inside, they're so depressed that hope is hard to find. And so God is greater than any of the demons, any of the addictions. And um, I just appreciate you coming on and sharing 
your story. I know I titled this episode, She's Been Married to a Sex Addict for 36 Years, <laughs> because that was a long time to be married and a long yeah. time for him to have an addiction. And what a wonderful thing, the recovery work the two of you have done. Yeah, it's our lives are better than ever right now. I wouldn't go back and trade it for anything. All right, well, take care, keep us posted, and thanks for doing the interview today. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. So, again, that's Beth Dennison, and she is an amazing inspiration. I, I know you could hear it. Um, and, you know, I, I teased her about, obviously, if you're agnostic or atheist, you might not be a proponent of her work. And at the same time, what I know is that most of us believe there is something greater than ourselves out there. So just like in 12-step programs, you don't have to absolutely be of a specific religion, denomination, or spiritual capacity to be open to the fact that um, lives can change when you change the way you look at things. And I thank her for coming on and talking about their um, spiritual ministry. So, okay, we are going to be wrapping up the show. I want you to stay in tune with what we talked about at the front of the show, and that is what are your needs? Write them out. And specifically, what do you need to develop more trust? And if you can say to me, if you were in my office and you said, Carol, I can't trust him, then okay, let's shift the question and what can you do to increase more trust in yourself? You're listening to Carol the Coach. And as I say at the end of every show, there'll only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. Have a great week. For more information, go to apsats.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.